this episode, we're going to jump into competitors, how you should think about them. If you're spending too much time thinking about them, what to do for a company that has a, a hero product. When is the time to launch a second hero product? Can you launch a second hero product? And why I think it's one of the most important things for you to see companies do. We just get some tactical advice on what does it cost to actually launch that second hero product. And then we talk about how awesome I am. They don't stick around to do these intros or outros. So I can say whatever I want. Go ahead and follow me on Twitter, Sean Ecom. I'll be dunking on all your favorite operators. Thank you so much for being here. The thing I'm always curious about is how much time do you guys spend thinking about your competition? Or do you think... Like, do you think about specific competitors? Do you think about the category? Like, who who wants to start? I'm I'm just curious on where your heads are at with this one. I'll go. Do it. I was thinking last night, this is in real time, before the episode idea got pitched, that I regret how much time I've spent thinking about competitors. Like, I was so silly to, like, get mad at somebody copying my ads or whatever. It is such wasted energy because we'll talk about competition, I think, in three tiers. There's aspirational competition, people you want to go after. There's cohort competition. And then there's, you know, infringing competition, okay? Now, we've spent millions of dollars tackling infringing competition. We'll talk about that towards the end, just like IP and IP enforcement. But I spent so much energy thinking about cohort competition that is just pointless. Those companies all end up going out of business. Like there's there's a company who is a bad actor, copies our ads, was stealing money from customers, the whole thing. And I just like I see everybody's investment decks. It's a small community, and their sales are down seventy five percent year over year or something. So I wish I spent more time thinking about my aspirational competition, which is Louis Vuitton, which is Mont Blanc, which is Coach. And way less time thinking about my cohort. So that is a big 2024 resolution for me personally. Here's a good tip. If you're getting someone's investment deck, they're probably not a very good business. Maybe they are. Unless they're, if they're doing something incredibly innovative that requires CapEx, like Lomi. But for the most part, if you're getting their investment deck for some retail brand, consumer brand, I think you should just like look at it and then delete it after you've learned what you wanted to learn. Well, there's two points to that. One, they probably need money because they're losing money. So that's what Jason's saying. They're probably a bad business. The second one is, why am I getting it? Like I am, <laughs> I am not a good investor. Like I am not blue chip. I am not Goldman Sachs out here. Like they know you're it's... a billionaire, Sean. When it, when it got out that you were a billionaire, everybody sent you the deck. <laughs> yeah, no, what, they just what... think Sean is a sucker, apparently, because I get a lot of people asking me, not a lot, but I get a handful, and I'm like, no, why would I do that? I'm, I need to diversify out of consumer. I'm like, all of my net worth, or you know, a significant portion of my net worth is is consumer. Why would I want to invest in more consumer? Dude, yep, that is that is a, another great point that do not do angel investments, do not buy D2C stock if your whole livelihood depends on D2C doing well. Like I we this happened in chat. 
there was somebody who was in the wellness space who got a pitch deck for a great company in the wellness space. And he was like, should I invest? I'm like, you should buy oil stock. Like you should do whatever the exact opposite of wellness is, because that is how you become balanced in your portfolio. So Jason, that's a great point. So Jason- Plus, you're in D2C, Jason. You have all this D2C exposure where you yeah. control it. And money in an investment where you're making the decisions is like, what, an order of magnitude better than money in an investment where you don't control the decisions and you don't have the level of insight that you have when you're operating a business? It's a great point. I mean, I think we've, Sean, I know you and I have talked about this before. I know we've, I've seen the chat too, like the over-indexing consumer can be super, it's like over-indexing anything. It makes sense. But like, Jason, do you, I mean, outside of investing in the space, how much time do you think about your competition? Right? Like Sean, I think that was a great, very honest answer. Yeah. Um, yeah no, Jason, what, what are your thoughts? To, we used to spend a lot of time thinking about the competitors, but I think it's because of like the timing of what's happened in our space with the pandemic, with everyone home cooking, with the rise of a, a number of, of cookware brands and the amount of money they've raised and spent on marketing. And, and to be honest, them being somewhat, I would say, ahead of us um, in 2021, in some respects regarding their, their D2C marketing, uh, their performance marketing, at least we thought they were ahead of us. And they probably were, and we just had a better product. So, you know, we've talked about this a bunch, like we spent 2022 really leveling up a lot of those things and then now we're at this point where you take the, the the three other really kind of well-known names and we're bigger than than all three combined. And one of them is bidding on our name on Google and the other is running attack ads against us. Uh, and the third one, actually, the CEO is a good guy. We've even talked on the phone and I a uh, bunch of times and I sent him a pepper mill and he sent me um, some really cool storage stuff that they did. So um i think it's i like what sean's saying i look to i like look to companies we're so big now that i don't i don't think there is any real competition for us in our space i think we're we're kind of our own competition and we want to aspire to be want to meet companies that are doing something special like i had a lunch the other day with one of the founders of mad happy and uh, Payment, his name is, great guy. I just love what Mad Happy has done with their brand. And Sean, we talked about uh, getting together with you. I think it'd be fun because he's right here by, with us um, in, uh, in the Arts District downtown. But what is, a, what is a brand that's doing something special that we can learn from? Like spend way more time doing that than, than looking at our competitors, but, um, you know, you, you, we talked about this in chat too, Matt, this, oh, well, should we do this product? Should we do that product? And well, don't do it unless it's better. And when it comes to competitors, competitors, don't be bitter, be better. Just, just be better. Figure out how to be better. Dude, that's the panzerism of the day. Don't be bitter, be better. That's good, man. That's, the that's the tip moment. of the day, dude. Take that. Uh, yeah, be better or be different. You've only got two choices, right? If you're going to compete. Um, yeah, like, but different is, like, is often better, right? It's differentiated. Totally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So I've talked about this several times, but I'll re reiterate the point. If you are in a true red ocean industry where the market is not growing and it is a war for market share and dollars that aren't expanding, then you have to think about your competitors a lot. It's just the name of the game, but those industries suck. And if you can help it, don't operate a business in one of those in, in one of those sectors because it is knockdown, drag out. One of the reasons why I think every person on this podcast has been successful is that we are in growing categories and in, to some extent have helped be responsible for the categories pushing outward and becoming bigger. And that's a totally different proposition that Sean has redefined how much the average guy might spend on a wallet. Whereas they might've just bought something for $30 at Dillard's 20 years ago. Now it's normative to buy a $125 wallet or, or whatever, you know, Matt, what you're doing with trash. I, I think Jason, the, the way that your category, I mean, people are just way more willing to spend it, Like I remember 20 years ago, it would have been like, I have a pan, you know, that's what I make things in my pan, my one pan. And now it's like, no, you've got like seven pans and you've got one for all these different. Anyway, we're all in these categories that have grown. And when you're in a growing category, it is a lot easier to run your own race and to not be as concerned with what everybody else is doing because it's not a scarcity mindset. It's an abundance mindset. If this thing is growing, the frontier is expanding, and there's room for a lot of people to go and stake their claim to something bigger and something better. And when, so number one, I would just advise if you don't want to spend all your time thinking about competitors, then find a way to be in more of a blue ocean category than a red ocean category. And then the second thing that, that I would say is, I think competitors can be really helpful and insightful. You can learn from them. What I try to do is look at competitors and say, what are they doing really well that I admire? What are the moats that they've built in their business that I admire and I wish we had in our business and how did they do it? And so instead of getting all kind of worked up emotionally and stressed out, instead, having, you know, you can develop this mindset of because you're competitive that you just kind of want to minimize anything that one of your competitors has done. But the reality is you can learn from it and you can grow from it. And just because a competitor came up with an idea or an approach or a strategy or a tactic that is great, that shouldn't offend me. I should just be willing to learn from it and see how it maps to my business and apply it. And then the final point I want to make is if you're in consumer, your competitors are more likely to be the big behemoths than they are, you know, somebody in your space. So like who's Sean's biggest competitor? It might very well be Apple, you know, because that's Apple's taking the biggest portion of the discretionary consumer budget of every single one of Sean. I mean, it might be all of our biggest competitor, but like for us, I think about Starbucks as like Starbucks might be my biggest competitor. I don't think about them that way, but that's the reality is when it comes to hydration and things having to do with hydration, Starbucks is by far the biggest portion of everybody's discretionary budget. And so when you reframe it that way, it also makes it feel silly to spend too much time thinking about competitors. Cause like, what am I doing? Spending a bunch of time worrying about what Starbucks is doing. I've got to kind of run my own race. The share of wallet thing's interesting. I mean, Sean, how much does that apply to you? Like, no, no pun intended. Uh, but <clears throat> you know, we've talked. You've mentioned like the TAM on accessories before, and I love the framing around like aspirational competition, right? I mean, Mike, when you're talking, I'm thinking of like Apple 
for Pila cases for sure. Like they are the biggest phone case company in the world. Mm-hmm. It's a direct like, map in your case. Massive, but yeah. like Apple is just the biggest, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just by nature of who they are. So like when, if you're talking to a young brand, like I, I don't know that we can advise to think of share of wallet, not actively think about it, but it's almost a good reason why you should never consider your peer group either, because we're all so tiny in our respective markets. Like most of the people listening to this show, I doubt, I don't know how many $10 billion a year consumer brands listen to this show. And if you do drop us a line, uh, but like share of wallet has to be a thing, right? Like, you know, yeah, Jason, and that was my point, much, Matt. That was yeah. exactly my point. My point was when you really start to think about it from a share of wallet perspective, you realize that you end up wasting a bunch of time thinking about another company doing 30 million in revenue that just in the larger scope of things doesn't matter. You know, that really your company being successful and growing to a significant scale is going to have everything to do with how you run your race. And it's not going to have to do with that company. Yeah. So Mike's aspirational competitor is Coca-Cola because they sell more water bottles than anybody else, right? And it it really doesn't help him at all to think about what, you know, some five or 10 or $50 million a year water bottle company is doing because his aspirational competitor is 50 to 100 times more impactful to the category and the choices they make. So I 100% agree with that. And I talk about the TAM on accessories is, is in the tens or, or, you know, approaching $100 billion or something crazy, right? So my cohort of competitors, the people that like I'm directly bidding against in Facebook ads, if anything, help me advance the category. And that's really like mm-hmm. the like, you know, there's a third bucket infringers, right? And like those those people are directly trying to steal money from you. But like the actual cohorts and like Bellroy is a great wallet company or Secred's a great wallet company, right? Like these these are wallet companies doing between fifty and a hundred million dollars a year. They're actually not taking sales from me. If they spend money on Facebook ads, they're just growing the awareness of the category, normalizing the spending the money like Matt you're talking about. So I shouldn't give a fuck what they're doing, right? Like my aspirational, like coach has a billion dollar a year men's business. That's who I'm going after. Like that's who I actually have to care about because I win market share from them. I don't lose market share to Secret or whatever else. It would be a great study to to look at this, but I'm I'm pretty sure what you would find is that Industries that have lots of great competitors tend to grow their share and tend to attract more talent than industries where you've got a bunch of poorly run companies. And so that's another, this is a big realization of the last 12 months. I want to be in an industry where there's lots of well-run companies, which seems counterintuitive because that means that the people that I'm, you know, quote unquote, competing with are better and more equipped and harder to defeat. You know, there's this kind of, uh, wisdom out there that the best way to start a company is you find an industry with really low NPS and then you launch into that and and maybe to get something started. But I think if you're like, I want to position myself in a category that can get huge over 10, 20 years and where I can grow a really significantly sized company, being in a place with lots of great competitors that are doing exactly what Sean said, like the amount that Simple Modern can grow awareness for insulated water bottles and can normalize spending more of your wallet on insulated bottles is limited. But Simple Modern plus Stanley plus Yeti plus Awala plus, you know, Corksicle plus Hydroflask, you know, when you've got a bunch of people spending money, all that's doing is raising awareness and normalizing the idea that, yeah, this is a thing you should spend 40 or $50 on. And yeah. that's incredibly beneficial for all of us. Yeah. It's a, uh, so I spoke with, I don't know if I told you guys this uh, privately. I definitely haven't mentioned it here, but I, I spoke with the founder of a, 
like $600 million a year smart home tech brand, uh, maybe about a month ago. And he was, we were talking about when he first started the company and this is going back like a decade, right? And they were the first to enter this category. I don't want to use names because I, I don't want to divulge anything, but they entered this new category in smart home. And within a year, what became the biggest winner in the category, they entered the market, right? And I, and I asked him, like, he still sold his company for like mega, mega bucks. Um, but the other guy sold for a lot more. And I asked him, like, you know, Dick, tell me about that experience. He said the thing that was, he's like, at the time, it felt like shit, right? That these guys showed up much better funded. And he's like, and honestly, way better product. Uh, he, he's like, the biggest thing we got was at first it felt like we got kicked in the stomach. Then the second, you know, once you settle down is, uh, we were shown what a really good product looks like. And that forced us to go back and say like, wow, our product is actually not that great. You know, they spent the next two years making it better. And then, you know, and then he said the same thing, Mike, like a bunch of people piled into that. And that category grew into be like multi, multi, multi billions from nothing. Like it didn't ne exist. Necessity, right? Necessity is the mother of all invention. Right now, I have elevators in my building that I own. And let me tell you guys, the elevator service industry sucks. <laughs> like you can't get these guys to do anything because there's like two people that do it and they know you don't have any options. And so the service and product often sucks. And like competition without a doubt brings out our best. Well, Mike, to be fair, you're the only guy with elevators in all of Oklahoma. So you have the tallest <laughs> building in all of Oklahoma. We, we fly them in from LA where they're yeah. more familiar with tall buildings. Yeah. So maybe that's why they're less responsive. I want to, I just want to bring up an analogy for Matt, right? About this home industry that the winner did not start the category. They were not the first entrant, right? And that's like, you know, the guy who wins marathons runs behind people for like 95% of it. He only comes out in front or she only comes out in front when they're like about to cross the finish line. They have a whole team of people running around them, right? And I think that's what happened with the cookware industry and Jason. Jason's like, yeah, we were not the best at D2C in 2020. We had to figure it out. But there's all these people who raised money and were spending money and normalizing this idea of buying pans online. And they they were taking <laughs> they were taking the headwinds right so jason could just come out and just now not only has he won the marathon race he's lapped them a couple of times right he's he's the jet ski to their icebreaker and that's that's just i think what you see in in any maturing market we're we're deep in 2024 right now and i actually just sat down with my team we were going through um, our production planning and just, just looking at how we, far we've come and how in integral fulfill has been to it. I mean, there's no way we could be having this conversation right now. We would be just dead in the water. Fulfill has really changed our business um, when it comes to managing our stock and our inventory. And, and on the back of that, being able to do really strong demand planning. And it's funny because I was hearing about uh, in chat another a vendor of uh, inventory management software. And uh, we actually onboarded that vendor like the day I started at Hexcloud in early 2020, and we never went live with it. It was that bad. So you can make really, really bad decisions in this area. You can literally burn tens of thousands of dollars and not have it work.
not have it even ever go live. And uh, we implemented Fulfill uh, at a key time in 2023. And uh, Q4 was a monster for us. And we wouldn't have done it uh, nearly as well without Fulfill. And this 2024 planning that we're finalizing now, our production planning, like I just don't know where we would be without it. Well, Jason, I'll go ahead and say someone in, in chat is trying to set up NetSuite and they said, hey, we got quoted uh, 12 months and like $250,000 in setup costs and no software on earth should ever take that long to set up. I would literally rather quit this industry and go be, I don't know, a, a farmer, yeah, barista, <laughs> then spend 12 months setting up in software. So for Phil's promise is it won't take 12 months. Uh, and Jason's using it right now to plan 2024. And Jason, just quick ballpark. You think it's going to be three or four billion this year in sales? Is that what you're planning? No, but we're going for like high double digit growth this year. So another huge year in the Hexclad family, powered by Fulfill. So here's one of the biggest risks when it comes to putting your attention on your competitors. You will see them doing something and you will have the outside perception that they are doing well. And you're tempted, your team is tempted to replicate whatever it is they're doing, to imitate what they're doing. But you know what you can't see with your competitors, especially if they're not public companies? You can't see what's going on inside. You can't see their economics. You can't see their books. When I worked with my brother, he would often bring me ideas and this was back in the 2010 era of D2C. And if you go back and you look at a bunch of the uh, companies that raised money and stuff, I mean, it's a graveyard. Amazon just kind of killed almost everybody that tried to challenge their ascendancy. But my brother would bring me companies all the time and he'd be like, "This, look at their Alexa chart. They are growing like crazy. And Alexa was the way that you could you know, monitor somebody's website traffic growth. And you know, we need to figure out how to do this. And I would dig in and I'd go back to him and say, listen, I have no idea how they're making these numbers work for them, but they wouldn't work for us. You know, this would be an absolute dumpster fire. And when you look at competitors from the outside without knowing all the context of what they're, why they're doing what they're doing and whether or not it's working, you run a real risk of imitating something that was never a good idea in the first place. You don't know what their cap table looks like. You don't know you know, what their, if their founders are having a fight and having a pissing match that's causing them to, you know, do something irrational. You don't know what's going on inside the company. And that's why you've got to run your own race because often it's a false positive anyway, when you see something that you're not doing and that doesn't make sense for you to be doing, but another competitor seems to be killing it doing. Yeah. Most, most entrepreneurs are, uh, have great productive paranoia. So when they start looking at their competitors, they're par paranoid that that person is winning or beating them or, you know, whatever they're doing is going to be no something the they don't, right? automatically you suck and they're amazing. Right. Um, so it, it is a great trap to avoid. Yeah. We've watched our competitors try to imitate things we've done and, and we've seen them go bankrupt because of it. It's like, yeah, dude, dude you don't, they, they don't have the cap table or the, the financing to pull off what we've been able to, to pull off. Right. And, or the oh man, I'm watching. I'm watching my competitors right now imitate things that we're doing that I know are not fucking working. Like that's I want to go back. Hilarity in it is like so. No, no, no. You shouldn't do this. It's terrible. Like I could tell you not to do this. I, I want to go back to something you both said because I think this is really key. In the extent that you are going to think about 
going head to head with your competitors. We're having an episode on competition. We should probably talk about how you think about competition in a positive way, other than just trying not to obsess about your competitors. And I think Sean and Matt, you both said something that's really key here. What will help one company to be successful may be really ineffective in a different company for reasons that aren't inherently obvious. And Sean, you mentioned your cap table. The ownership structure of your company prepares you, equips you to be successful in certain ways that other companies uh, who have a different cap structure can't be. So like for us, one example is we don't have outside money and we're internally owned. So what does that allow us to do? Well, that allows us to take a longer view than any of our competitors, right? Because I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a stock price. I don't have to roll up somebody's corporate earnings. I don't have, you know, a PE overlord or something that, that wants to see a certain number. So I can be more patient. Um, if my competitors, like let's say, let's say Hydroflask tried to imitate that. They can't. Hydroflask is owned by a public company. They have things that they have to do as a result. And the inverse is true. Hydroflask can do some things that I can't because of the fact that they're part of a public company. They can, you know, if they want to throw really massive amounts of capital at something in a hurry, they can do that way more effectively than I can. And they should use that to their advantage because there are some disadvantages to being held by a publicly traded company. Part of being good competitively is understanding what are my unique assets? What are my unique abilities that I have with how I'm situated and how do I use those to the maximum of my ability? And hopefully you you, you can identify some that you're like, Sean, I like your cohort analogy. I think examining your cohort to understand the unique fingerprint that each one has and what they're going to be good at and what they might be weaker at, that's a, that's a really relevant way to use your time. Like one of the things that I'll do from time to time that's a very helpful mental exercise. Uh, imagine it like you're playing cards with all your competitors and you're just sitting around a big round table. And so I'll, I'll pretend like, okay, I'm, I'm in this card game and the cards kind of represent my business and all the options, all the assets, you know, that I have in my business. So I lay down my hand and, you know, I rotate over and I pick up Stanley's hand and I'm just looking at the cards. Okay. What, you know, what is my employee base? What's my cap, my capital situation? What's my distribution situation? What's my momentum? Who's my customer? How am I probably playing my hand? Okay, now I'm going to lay those cards down. Now I'm going to pick up Yeti's hand. If I'm the Yeti CEO, how am I playing this hand? What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? Okay, I'm going to lay that down. Now I'm going to pick up somebody else's hand. And if by the time I go all the way around the table, I'm just so much more aware of how the leadership of all my other competitors are thinking and the things that they might want to try and do. And that also makes it really obvious to me the areas where there is more blue ocean, where there is some white space, where our unique characteristics allow us to be more successful, compete more successfully. So Mike and Sean, the what Sean described about everyone spending in the hex cloud category and raising awareness and making it easier for us, um, this is exactly what's going on in your space. I mean, I, if I were you, I'm, I'm stoked what's going on with Stanley. If I'm you guys, I'm like, great. Oh, it's been a massive tailwind. I mean, I Massive. love it. And, and just like be better, right? You guys, I remember the, the turning over the two drinks, right? Like be better, you're better. And then eventually they will find you because that's what happened to us. One of the competitors that I mentioned, um, they were not that far behind us in terms of um, top line 
revenue at the end of 2021. Um, they had spent a lot more money to get there. Um, and so like that's been great for us. And on, on top of it, if you have a better product than your competitors, your competitors are actually acquiring, you're helping you acquire your customer because after they have an inferior experience over time, they will come to you, right? There's one player in, in our space that they sell one product really um, at a much lower AOV than us, but it's, you know, it's substantial. It's like hundred plus. You know how many customers they have to acquire to sell those hundred dollar things? And and if they're gonna do a hundred million in revenue or 150 million in revenue selling those hundred dollar things that aren't very good, like that is awesome. We love that. That's like customer acquisition um softball for us. And as long as your product is better, that's the way I think people should be thinking about it. So here's a great example from this week. This literally happened two days ago. We are going to do some business with Costco. I know it's been a great channel for you, uh, Jason. Uh, we're, we've got a program, I think, that goes live in April. Apparently, Costco has a Canadian arm, 110 clubs, and they recently changed the buyer that's over hydration and put uh, a new gentleman over, over hydration. Uh, so... He gets into the system, the Costco system, and pulls the contact information of everybody uh, at Simple Modern that he can find and just starts randomly firing off emails and texts. And we don't even know that this is like a real Costco buyer because it kind of feels like it might be spam. Um, and when we finally get in touch with him, we, here's what we come to find out. He got promoted in this role. He's been a Simple Modern fan for like four or five years. Uh, he inherited a program that Awala sold into Costco, Canada. And that program is murdering it. And we've been performing really similarly to Awala in a bunch of different settings uh, from Amazon to Target to different places. And so he basically called us to say, hey, I have a $2 million program that I, I've already reserved for you. I just need you to say that you're willing to do it. And so if that's not an example of how categories matter and your competitors can actually be a tailwind, like, yeah, he was, he was predisposed to like want to buy from us, but a competitor having a program that's hitting great numbers gave him the confidence to be like, okay, I'm going big with this program and I already know where I'm going and to reach out to us. So it's just another illustration of the point that you're making, Jason. You know, the, um, the thing, Mike, that you said that I think I, I just want to make sure nobody loses because I think it's really important. Competitive advantage is not actually about one thing, right? So when you look at that hand, you know, what we yeah. often see in our industry is it's like, oh, Ridge is badass at media buying. Like that's why Ridge is so good. It's like Connor is just some freaking nature meta media buyer. It's like, well, no, not really. There's like three or four things. And it's the combination of those things that makes Ridge very good at what they do. Right. So when you are looking at your competitor, it's super easy to cherry pick that one thing that we see. You can do this in life, by the way. It's just good advice, Mike, that you gave. Just like never look at somebody and be like, shit, I wish I had his money. It's like, well, yeah, but do you want his, his marriage? <laughs> you know, like you need the whole thing. You can't just say I want his money. Right. So like when you look at your competitor and you see that one thing, you need to look at the rest of it because you can't just have the one. You got to take the whole hand. You don't just get to pick the cards. 
every characteristic has a trade-off. So I look at Yeti and I'm in awe of that. They've got a several billion dollar company. That's awesome. But you know what that also means? That means they're not going to chase $10 million opportunities. Too small. They just won't do it. So that's the trade-off. You want to run a multi-billion dollar company? Here's the thing. You can't do new initiatives where they don't have a potentially a nine-figure outcome because it just can't meaningfully grow your company. And when you start to realize that, that even the strengths, even the assets, the assets of your competitors also have the shadow side that you're describing, Matt, like the, the trade-off, that's when you can start to see how you can carve out space that's unique, differentiated, blue ocean, protectable, that, that you can do better than other people. I just want to... Oh, sorry. I'm going to jump in about public companies real quick. I think Yeti's a great example how they need to be looking for 100 million plus opportunities. Well, Jason comes from the public world. He can talk about this. If you're a public company, your year is set by the finance department and they have a thing called earnings per share and you're going to hit that number hell or high water. That's what you're going to hit because they just told every fucking analyst at every investment bank and they reported this is the earnings per share they're going to hit. So- the biggest advantage a, a private company has over a public company is you don't have to hit earnings per share. You can lose money. Like, and and you can have variance in your business when you see opportunities, right? So a good example is Yeti, right? So I think Mike loves Yeti. I'm close with the Yeti team. They can't launch travel correctly. So they made a carry-on suitcase, but it wasn't a hundred million dollar opportunity for them, and to build that travel business, they needed to drop earnings per share, have a lower margin profile, then actually scale into that thing. Because it's hard to sell a suitcase with the same margins as the cooler; it's never going to be the same price or whatever else. So they they basically just abandoned that program. Like it's just on their website; you can buy it, but they're not marketing it, they're not promoting it, and that inspired us to do a carry on line because what we saw is that they. Do not have the DNA to go out there and build like uh, a, a Tumi killer, a Tumi competitor. We can because I don't got to report to anybody. So if you're looking at people to compete with, you can look at earnings per share and be like, I can go lower than these people. And it's the reason why everyone wants to kill Google because Google had this, 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 this big, amazing money printer called Google Search. And like this is what the CEO of Microsoft said. He doesn't need to have 80% market share that Google has. He needs eight. Like that's all he just needs to win a couple percentage points and he has a billion dollar business. And that's why everybody's going after him. That's the innovator's dilemma too. Like that's that, yeah. that book, the innovator's dilemma. Yes. It's kind of an old did book. I, did I shot that out last week? If I did, no, you you might there's, yeah. yeah, there's a second one called the innovator's solution, but Sean is absolutely, I mean, you guys are both touching on it. Like the, the, the whole idea is that when you get a business that's successful, the thing that's successful will compromise and co-opt and cannibalize any attempt at disruptive growth anywhere else. Because- the, uh, it, Mike, you know, it's funny. Jason always asks that question. Yeah, but why should I do this right now? Often, Jason, the answer to that question is, well, if you're, because to assume that the thing that we all have that works is going to work forever is also a dangerous proposition. Yeah, they, they specifically talk about that idea, Matt, and how if you want to create meaningful growth, you have to start- investing in it and working on it while the core business is still healthy or what happens is you kind of hit a wall in growth and then you're mm -hmm. like oh god we've got all the we've got to have all these new initiatives they've got it they've got to produce they've got to produce right now and that's not how you grow new business units
A mm. hundred years ago. That's absolutely right. It's also easier said than done, but yeah. absolutely. That's absolutely right. Well, there's a reason. So there's hard. a reason why Google doesn't. You know, Google hasn't really replicated search. They 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 basically have a money printing press. They've got so many smart people, but it's like it's Google is still search. You know, I mean, I guess they've got a couple of interesting things. Like I love YouTube TV, for example. They've got a couple of interesting things, but like for the amount of money that they've thrown at moonshot projects and the amount of resources, people and, you know, uh, financially that they have, it's a little bit shocking that they haven't found the second, you know, massive, massive win. A hundred years uh, ago. Gmail is a pretty big win. Yeah, yeah. Look, they, they, they have a lot of small wins they roll up. But 100 years ago, the largest companies on earth by market cap were all radio companies. All of those companies have gone out of business or been rolled up or sold a million times. We saw the same thing with movie studios in the, 40, in the 40s. And it's going to happen to the tech giants. It's like like the innovators love it. You have, you have a golden goose and then eventually the goose dies before it can replicate, right? And that's going to- And look, man, in consumer, it's about the products we release. Right? Like Sean, that's basically what you're saying. Like in, in the world of consumer, if you're not thinking about new product, you are opting to die. That's yeah. And too much of the conversation is about optimizing Facebook ads or what email provider you should use, Sendlane, or what you should do for <laughs> your, your ERP fulfill. Like it's, it's all about these, like, like what I consider percentage point plays, right? It, like the reason we launched rings, the reason we launched travel, and I'm gonna launch more categories is because each one of those can triple the business, right? And like, it, if I just focused on wallets all day long, I would go out of business like all the other fucking wallet companies because that is not a long-term successful strategy. We need to be making gadgets for dudes for forever. I'll be really honest with you. The cost savings is probably the biggest driver for me. I think I'm going to save like over $100,000 a year switching. And there is nothing I would not do to save $100,000 on SaaS. <laughs> like the, the, whatever the darkest thing you're thinking, yeah, that's me trying to save money on SaaS. So that's a big driver. And uh, look, I, I believe in the product. I've seen it. I've seen the demos. People, people are like, oh, is migration going to be a pain in the ass? Yes. That is why I did not migrate in Q4. It's never going to be painless to do one of these things, right? Like, I've been on Clavio for 10 years. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take some time and effort to put it in, but Jimmy is the type of guy who's committed to make it as seamless as possible. So I'm very, very excited to switch to Sendlane. Um, they're a startup, man. I think their culture matches mine. I'm excited to be there. So Photoshop a Sendlane logo on my jersey because that's where I'm going, guys. <laughs> Love it. So this is actually a great kind of side conversation that we've been having internally. And I think you hit on it, Sean. The question of when do you diversify outside of your core product, like in terms of what scale do you need to be at to do that, is I think a fascinating one that, that we're thinking about. We, I wonder if we diversified out of core drinkware too quickly, that we, we took our focus a little bit too quickly off core drinkware. And so I'm really, and especially right now when I'm thinking about international expansion and thinking we could probably triple the company just by focusing on core drinkware for the next three to five years. And so Sean, one of the points that you made that I think is worth kicking off the discussion of this, you said at this point, travel makes sense because travel, travel can triple the business. So 
your, your business is big enough that you have the financial resources and the scale to have major influencers, to put some real money behind it. But it's also not so big that travel can't move the needle like what we just said with Yeti, right? So how do you guys think about when is it the right time? Because we've got people listening to this that are like one product companies. And we've got people listening to this that are like getting into the tens of millions or even the nine figures. Maybe even there's, some, you know, I heard Tim Cook's a huge fan. I actually didn't hear that, but um, but we've probably got people that are even bigger than that. And so at what point does it make sense to expand and take on new markets and compete in, in new places? And, and what points should you be focusing on what you're doing? Can you lose a million dollars and not be angry about it? Like launching a product category, no matter what category it is, costs about a million dollars. If you want to do it really well, it costs five million. But like that's really like what we're talking about to do a PO, to do a photo shoot, to do influencers, to do ads, put ad dollars behind it. And this is a million dollars in free cash. It can't, it can't be going to someplace else. It can't be free. It can't be for your taxes. It can't be for your boat. Like it needs to be a million dollars that if you lose it, you're fine with it. And I've done, I've lost a million dollars about two times in my business. And would I, would I love to have an extra $2 million right now? Yeah, it'd be pretty fucking sick. But I, I, I made those bets. And with those bets, I did it four or five times. I found rings. I found travel out of it. So that's, huh. that's my tactical number to answer your question. What about you guys? What, what, what do you think? I don't, I don't know that there's an, I don't think that there's a, I mean, Sean, that's for you guys, right? Because for for you now to launch, it's actually not worth your time to launch a new category that isn't a cannonball in its size. Like you're not at the size where you can fire a bullet. Whereas like I do know people who launch like a, an entire consumer brand for like 20 grand, right? And that's doable. So I think at your size, Sean, that's like, that's the number. But I don't think there's a clean number uh, in revenue or or anything that would be like, go try something else. If right? you're launching, I, I do a think it's competitive though. If you're launching a consumer brand for twenty grand, email me, Sean at Ridge.com. I will just, I'll buy it. I'll hire you. Like, <laughs> that's that's some hustler mentality right there, dude. I I, got, I met a kid this past week who did it, and I'm like, and I saw his numbers, and I'm just like, I, yeah, I but that's an anomaly. It's possible. I know it's it a is possibility. I mean, we we are all in the in like the ninety five plus percentile, like. Did I talk about this on one of the pods recently? Like I met the head of commercial banking of JP Morgan in, in New York, like the number one guy in all of commercial banking. He's like, we had lunch at ICR and he's like, you guys are the 99 percentile. Like 99% of people who go to do something like this never get to where you are. And you ought to be really proud of, of what you've done. He said this to Danny and me. It was actually a really nice moment that we had. Um, but like, let's not... Um, underestimate the difficulty here. But by the way, I love how Sean, I love how Ridge, by the way, it's a, it's a pretty incredible what Ridge has done with the rings and luggage. I mean, I don't know much about the luggage numbers, but I think they're doing well. Um, because I remember sitting around our office here, uh, Danny and me talking about different businesses and Ridge is one that we come back to a lot because you guys are so great at marketing. And talking about, well, what is what you know, what does Ridge do after wallets? And I'm and I know you've spent like decades thinking about it, really. Um, well, not decades, but like man years. And the fact that you've managed to do that is is really impressive. And the fact that you could actually run funnels 
on on wallets, on rings, and on um, luggage is is incredible because we think about what funnels we're running for our products, and it's actually really hard for us to run funnels beyond our hero products, like beyond. You know, we got to run just from an AOV to CAC perspective. Um, we run funnels to acquire customers based on sets to keep, and we keep our AOV up and it works really well for us. But we have other products like, like the pepper mill, which people absolutely go nuts for. Um, and to a lesser extent, our knives, which are excellent. And we're, we're always trying to sort of debating whether we can just run acquisition on those products. And it's, I can't compare that to Ridge because those are still kind of really tight adjacencies that I'm talking about. Whereas your adjacency is, yeah, dudes would like this too, right? Or, so it's it's really interesting. It's something that we've been talking about a lot lately. Well, I'm going to give you some tactical advice and you could either take it, think on it, or you could throw it away and say it's worthless. I don't really care what you do with it, Jason, but you will not be able to scale the pepper mill or the knives for one key reason. Talking about the wallet business and going to rings and going to travel, you all of those are an AOV step up. Okay, so the wallets are 100 to 150 bucks. Rings are 150 to 225, right? Maybe 325 with the most expensive ring. Travel is 350 now, and we're launching like a big kit. It'll be like 650 or 700. By stepping up an AOV, it lets us run separate Facebook funnels that are like, you know, pretty sophisticated, but even if they're not, they'll go down and they'll hit a cheaper customer or a cheaper customer, right? You, The pepper mill at a lower AOV will fuck up all your funnels because Facebook will end up spending money. Or like if your CAC target is a hundred bucks on the sets and the pepper mill's $65, well, Facebook will be like, well, we spent $85 on this customer and that customer is a pepper mill customer you end up losing money on. I just think structurally, the only way to get this done is to move up AOV and higher CACs for all these product categories. So if you want to product expand, you need to come up with products that are $1,000 plus, which is really fucking hard to do, right? That is you getting into appliance categories right or cars or something sean that's a great call out and i and i agree with you and i I didn't have like the detail that you do but but my 52 year old man 27 years in business gut has always told me that this is a bad idea and i'm like constantly fighting with the growth team about this because they want to we ran it on the knives like and and it it it, the, the question though is is it is it an LTV play? Like, do we do we actually acquire them? We say we use the pepper mill, but like they buy, they wind up getting into something else, and that's that's kind of hard to measure. So that's the only that's the only rub is like, do they wind up doing other things? And we, we've seen it's it's very hard to to measure because of also we're selling in different channels. You know, we might see someone might come in and buy a pepper mill and a chicken fryer. And spend four hundred bucks or three hundred bucks, but from our site. But they might have bought a twelve-inch pan on Amazon already, so we don't know that we acquired that customer. 
through well right like they're already a hex cloud customer just just through a different channel through amazon what killed most d2c brands is failure to have a second hero product it killed casper it kills i mean i'm not away's not dead but away all of these companies have single hero products that they eventually uh extinguish right like they acquire too many customers they outbid themselves competitors come in right and it's really fucking hard with the modern digital equipment to get a second hero product. Facebook doesn't, it isn't set up to sell two hero products. That's why we have so many different Facebook accounts, Facebook pages, ad accounts. It's all set up with different pixels to try to actually break out and build this different buying behavior products. And it's still not perfect. And that's why starting at a lower AOV and making product headers that are higher AOV has helped us because there's, there's a spillover effect. If you're trying to sell, you know, uh, a, you know, thousand dollar product right and then and then they end up and your second hero product is a 65 dollar product i just don't think i think facebook land just forcing you to lose a lot of money but by having 100 and then going to 200 and then going to 400 like it's just been able to work for us that's my theory it's a laddering effect and i think getting a second hero product is necessary for every single brand at some point and you can't show me a brand that doesn't have a second hero product but jason like you say why well, should do it now look fucking i'm not gonna tell you to do anything you got hundreds of millions of dollars you can you can let it ride for five more years but just in the back of your head think what is what is my second hero product from here yeah so by the way just just for, for the record um we have been developing something really special for like a year and a half now um and uh I'll get killed to mention it, but it is a second hero product with a higher AOV than our average AOV. Um, but you know, to be D, TBD, like when you do this stuff, whether it's really gonna, you're gonna get it right. So we'll see if we get it right. But it's definitely something that we're. we're it takes we're time on. too, right? When you launch the new product, I know Sean, we've I know you've talked about this before, but like when you launch that new product, it does take time to bake. It's rare that you put something out that's like an immediate rocket. Yeah. And I just want to say, Jason, I know what it is. And to spoil it for everybody, it's actually a dirt machine. It's a <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's a put, composting machine. Yeah, it's about to get really awkward on this podcast. Food recycling. Thanks. <laughs> Matt. It's actually worry, a, Matt it's a that. it's a composter that goes in your pocket, kind of like a wallet. So yeah, it's really yeah, recovering everything. <laughs> Well, um, I, one one thing I would say though, Sean, I think the exception to your point is there's actually a lot of great companies that just do one thing, but they're typically omni-channel or they have a significant physical. I mean, I would actually even say I, the majority of things you would see in physical probably specialize in one place. Maybe the other extreme of the spectrum would be somebody like Shark Ninja, which is just like, hey, anything in the kitchen area, we we can sell it. We can sell you a mop. We can sell you a blender, but I don't, I don't know that that would be generally true, but Dude, customer acquisition works different. Let's talk about it. Name a $500 million a year brand that has one flagship hero product. Crocs? Yeah. I mean, I think in apparel, you could certainly do it. Yeah. I think, I think apparel is a little bit special just because like, okay, Ralph Lauren, like, yeah, they have, they have the polo, but they got women's and everything else. Crocs is a great example. Uh, they do have the giblet business, but, but maybe that wasn't their, their, their hero product. 
We've got a lot of operators fans out there, a lot of people using Northbeam. I use it every single day. If you want a higher level of planning and accuracy out of your MTA solution, Northbeam is the tool I use. Jason's on board with their multi MMM, MTA. Yeah. You know what's really what's really cool about having a partner like Northbeam is that I, I give them feedback and they make changes. Like they they create they change their dashboards based on things that I told them as a C-level exec I care about to make it be useful to both the media buyer and the senior execs who may not, like I'm not pulling levers in the ad account. I, I'm not capable of doing it. Uh, Sean is capable, but I hope you're not doing it anymore. I'm sure you're not doing it anymore. Like the fact that they uh, they sort of developed the product in a way that it's still it, it's actually really useful in different ways to senior people and media buyers, I think is was is pretty special to have a partner like that. I get your point that obviously it gets a heck of a lot easier when you get a second hero product, but the the other side of that is now you're competing with twice as many people and you're trying to divide your mind share in two different ways across two different fronts that it's one thing to be like, Oh, I'm just going to focus on the drinkware competitive set and try and be great in drinkware. But the moment I'm trying to do drinkware and, you know, whatever blenders or mops or whatever else, it's like, okay, now that's, now my team is divided. And so I, you know, you guys have done it well, but it seems like that's gotta be one of the biggest challenges, right? Yeah. We have to have like a, like a pod system. That like there's certain people who work on just international, some people who just work on rings, who just work on travel, who just work on dealing with product development, people who just specialize. We have project managers for those lines. Crocs is a great example. So I'm going to give you that, that you can get a really big business off of one product category. I've always said shoes is the best product category though. So <laughs> I, I'm going to take credit on that one. I Once again, Sean Frank, never wrong. But if somebody's listening and being like, well, Stanley can get to $700 million off of one product category, so Sean's wrong. I'm just going to do what Stanley did. Good fucking luck to just, yeah, do, what luck. St- to just luck. do what Stanley did. 100 years, they got to $70 million bucks in revenue selling thermoses. Like, they just... If you if your strategy is to strike lightning, okay, man, that's my strategy too. It's not working. Yeah, I, I don't think it's probable at all. Can I ask, uh, Sean, you mentioned at the beginning of this, like this idea of an aspirational competitor. Like, so categorizing this when you, and then Jason, you kind of went to it too, right? Like you're not looking at your peer group as competition. You really go out, you're like companies that are aspirational for you. What the hell are you looking at? Like maybe Sean, start with you. Like when you look at like a coach and you've got this aspirational competitor, like, are you learning from them or are you more like, I'm just motivated by the fact that I can get that big? You have to have someone you're actually trying to fight and be and win from. And it's like, it's not the people doing $20 million a year who are just upstarts. I just got to have respect for them because, like, I was where they were at some point. Like, you know, got to wish them the best. Coach has a billion dollar a year men's business. I want a billion dollar a year men's business. So the only people I, I can look to and learn from is coach. And if it's a dog eat dog fight, I'm coming for them. Nobody at that company cares about that business, right? Like it's just they're just paying uh, executives to to shepherd this thing right off a cliff, and I'm coming behind them, and I'm going to take that market share. So that's the aspirational competitor. They don't know about me. They don't hear about me. They don't think about me. Like they're they're in their bubble doing whatever. But like my aspirational competitor is I'm coming after Toomey. I am coming after Coach. And 
I'm, I'm the little kid in the room, but eventually I'm going to grow big and I'm, I'm going to beat that room. And then I'll have a new aspirational competitor. It'll be fucking Amex. And I'm just going to be going after Amex all day long, <laughs> right? Something like that. Right? <laughs> you mean like, so the way I look at competitors is I find one, I find, well, like the aspirational competitor thing is really, I think of it more as like aspirational comps. Who, who, who do I want our business to be a comp to? Um, we talk about Yeti a lot. I talk about Lululemon. I want to find businesses that I can think about and analyze and get to know that'll help me be better. Right? It'll help us be better. I think that's really the same thing uh, that, that, that Sean is saying. It's like, like, it doesn't make sense for us to worry about people that are half our size. I mean, we do have to, we do have that innovators dilemma piece, which is, if there's someone who's really, really unique and bringing like some kind of game-changing value proposition or technology, then we would be stupid to to not pay attention, um, and we do. But but really, going forward, what we're trying to do is is look at you know who what are the businesses that are are successful based on the sort of metrics that we care about, and what are they doing that we can incorporate into our business, and what are, what may what could what what tweak to that do we want to do? Like, for example, we're talking about our marketing and we're talking about our paid ads a lot lately. We have our own content studio now. We have a team. We're building the team. We've got Gordon Ramsay. We've got a great relationship with Fox. Like, do we really want to be running like shitty, unbranded UGC ads now? Like, is that really at our size and scale? Or, or or should we think, no, we're different and we should be better. What we should do is have like ads that are branded that also perform well. Like there's no excuse in my mind to not be able to do both. Um, but everyone's like, we had the, con- the conversation about quantity versus quality of creative. I've always been a quality guy in everything I do in my career. Even when I was a banker, that's why people drive me nuts when I get the cold emails that just fucking suck. Like learn to write a cold email, target it, please. It's like I, I, I had other guys that worked with me and they were sending so many emails to prospects and I'd be like, no, let me do the research. Let me find good prospects. Let me send them emails. I just like, I feel like it's the same, at least for us in marketing that in paid ads, like, do we need to get really, really, really get crazy and test every tiny little iteration like, does that, when does that get too far? And sh- shouldn't we be like looking at how a really big brand runs an ad and think about, okay, we want to look and feel highly branded and elite, but also have elite performance. And we should not compromise on either of those things. Your aspirational comps are, in my opinion, Soho House, Equinox. It is, it is the highest end of performance, right? And my pitch to you is going to be, you should buy Soho House. I think they're publicly traded at like $120 million market cap. It's like, yeah, dude, roll roll it in. It's now Hexclad House. And I'm excited for that. So uh, when I think about Hexclad and their aspirational comps, because I don't think there's anything in the in the cooking space that, that could be 
your coach, you have to start looking at like, like American Express is a great example for you, right? Like what is the highest end clubs or, or Fox is a great one. I know they're a partner of yours, but like, no, we're a content house or Condé Nast. Like we're coming after what you guys are doing, but Matt, what's your point? We can wrap it. I was going to hit the hit on the Jason, your comment on ads. I'm with Sean a hundred percent. I think you guys have already proven that more ads, you're already defying gravity as a company. So going out and running traditional, what you see everybody else do is not the way to go for you guys. I don't think like I would be thinking along the lines that you are exactly like along the lines of what Sean just said. It's like fire a cannonball, man, getting another shitty little UGC ad and firing up 300 of those into meta. I know every media buyer out there watching this is going to jump down my throat on Twitter. I don't care. It's just not the right move for your business. It's unlikely. Sorry. It's probably not the right move for your business. I can't say that definitively. I like it. And I'm glad that we actually agree. Mike, what's your opinion on that one before we wrap up? I know you're not a big paid ad specialist, but you're a fucking well, kick-ass business guy. I, I think the there's two things. One of the things that makes competition such an interesting question, and this is maybe a great meta point to wrap it all together is one of the reasons you shouldn't think about your competitors very much is even if they are selling things in your exact same space, you can be playing a totally different game. Jason, you are playing an enterprise value game. I'm not. I'm not a seller. I won't be a seller at any point in the next five or 10 years. My enterprise value is largely irrelevant in the way that I think about the business. I'm much more of a PL, you know, cash flow type of way that I'm going to approach the business. You are maximizing for enterprise value because you've built something that can have literally billions of enterprise value. And the way that you run paid ads should be reflective of that. And then the second thing I would say is the same point that we made earlier. I have no doubt that by firing off a bunch of new creative, you can generate more sales. It can't take you to the next level, whatever the next level is for Hexclad, those at, you know, just a bunch more creative and, and uh, that we're kind of talking about, I don't think that's going to be the thing that does it. It doesn't necessarily mean you don't do it. It just means like, Hey, if it's taking up a lot of the capacity of your team to do it, then it's, it's, I would probably refocus that on, Hey, how do we do the thing that actually adds 250 million in enterprise value here? And, you know, let's, let's go after those things. One of the things that I thought was interesting, it was a, a piece of managerial advice, but it really resonates with me that one of the reasons why you want to leave, you don't want your people to be busy their entire week is that when people have their schedule full, you know what they'll do? They'll spend all their time on like B minus to B plus importance projects because they know that they can be successful on those and they'll just procrastinate on the things that could be A plus projects because it's not certain that they'll be successful and because it's easy to not wanna take on the thing that might not work out. And in the game that you're playing, that's those are the swings you got to be taking right love it love it don't be bitter be better that's the <laughs> panzerism of the day that's episode 41 thank you for listening